This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hello, and welcome to our next episode of Series 2 of the Vanguard Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome a member of the World Economic Forum's global innovator community, Diana Paredes. Diana is the CEO and co-founder of Suede Labs, a software platform that enables financial institutions to understand and deliver their regulatory requirements. Prior to founding Suede, Diana had a successful career in investment banking covering all asset classes at Barclays and Merrill Lynch across sales, trading and structuring. Whilst working in that industry, she saw an opportunity to innovate and launch her current fintech regtech startup. She believes that a data-driven approach to regulation is the key to preventing the next financial crisis. Diana, thanks so much for joining me this morning and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed researching about Suede Labs and yourself over the past few weeks. But what I really want to start off by allowing you to do is tell us a little bit about yourself, how a graduate from Imperial College London with a master's in engineering gets into investment (laughs) banking starts Suede Labs, becomes a member of the World Economic Forum's global innovative community. And now here we are on the Vanguard podcast. I'd love you to give us a a, a bit of an overview and, and walk me through that journey. Yeah, of course. So I guess that, you know, the, the engineer part, I studied civil and environmental engineering. So it was actually the first year they were offering environmental engineering. And I was very focused on the, the realities that I wanted to make the world a better place, which is why I was very, very keen on the environmental piece in my degree. Uh, but then as I was studying, I kind of realized that the, I guess the, the, the world of engineering is quite siloed. And I was very interested in current affairs and on having maybe a more, you know, direct impact from my job into into what was happening in everyday everyday life, and so I joined banking with that you know with that spirit in mind actually. So I started in foreign exchange, which was very close to following politics and, and economics, and then obviously because of my engineering background, I kind of understood um, I guess the more technical part of the of the work uh, that you do in investment banking, you know, in terms of like structured products and uh, analysis, and uh, and so that's basically where where I ended up and. As part of that journey, obviously, I, I learned a lot, and it's, it was incredible to be to be on the trading floor, and it's uh, it's still something that you know I always cherish. And in many ways, I haven't really left banking now. Instead of being within a bank, I kind of service you know the financial industry sure. uh, from from the outside. But in many ways, I think that the the time I spend you know on the trading floor and what I learn and the kind of like analysis about. The, the, I guess the impact of the financial crisis in 2008, which obviously I lived through and through, right? Because I was at Merrill Lynch, yep. that became Bank of America. I was on the trading floor, you know, when we, the famous September, you know, the, of course, yeah. the crisis kind of started. And uh, I mean, I remember it from September because we actually were probably in the middle of a crisis at Merrill Lynch way before things started to really collapse in October. But fundamentally, it's a situation where by basically living that, I was one of the the few people that survived it uh, as a young, you know, young banker. And so I learned a lot. And then in that journey, I kind of realized that there was an opportunity in many ways to automate this analysis um, of the changes in the regulation and the impact it had in the industry in a way that it could be turned into software. And yep. so I found that it was, you know, insane that we were doing this analysis so manually, uh, the impact it had on the on the balance sheet and on decisions that were made by management, you know, across every bank on the back of the financial crisis were, were quite real and uh, the availability of data very poor. 
And so the, the spirit behind Swede is very much around, you know, really leveraging our financial regulation, which is basically an obligation mm -hmm. as a way to leverage the data of the industry, to free the data of the industry. So I would say that we're a tech first company and a, a data first company as well, right? So we're, we're very focused on the technology piece and on being very data savvy with our work. It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because we often see the banking industry as, as, as old fashioned. And, you know, I was going to go into this later, but it's a really good segue as to what you've just described. And, you know, the banking sector from a retail perspective, because most of us out there have not had the commercial or the investment banking experience that, that you have. But certainly from a, a retail perspective, banks are often perceived as the most Luddite type of industry out there where, you know, they still have fax machines and they their technology is just so archaic compared to what oh, we yeah. have in the real world. Yeah. Is, is that a fair comment, do you think? And is technology making a rapid recovery in that sector now because of the amount of data, the amount of information, the amount of AI that they could put and machine learning that, that the industry could possibly utilize as opposed to waiting on those old guys in bowler hats making those decisions? Is that a fair comment? do you think I think you know it's it's a complex question right because I mm. think it's a bit the the devil is in the detail with that sure. so I think that the um, in many ways the realities of how archaic the technology in the financial industry is for the most part is something quite scandalous right because obviously it's a, it's a sector that you know makes money it's a, it's a very safe you know investment when you look at the stock market you know investing in in banks for example is not a it's not a bad idea. It's yep. not super risky. Yep. But, you know, there is a reality where wherever you look at it in the spectrum, uh, whether it's, you know, small banks or, you know, very large banks, they will have very different problematics. But overall, the, the process of change is still quite clunky. And what's interesting is that from my experience, it has actually a lot more to do with people right? Interesting. <laughs> than, uh, than, than anything else, right? And, uh, you know, you will find that in small organizations, you know, unless they're like neobanks, right? So the, which, you know, have made a whole point about their technology being modern and, and you know, up for, up for the new century that of we're course. in, yep. you find that, you know, the smaller banks can be, you know, quite careful about not doing something that's too controversial so they're not going to be the first to adopt technology yep. and by the time that they adopt something that has been in use you know safely for five years and that's already the old model because technology moves so quickly so i think that there is a decision making process reality that makes it quite difficult within the smaller organizations like an aversion to risk right to to basically adopt and be the first ones in terms of adoption of new technology again it's a big generalization but i would say that that's what you see for the for the most part and then in the larger organizations, what you find is you have good technology support and leadership, but within the organizations, there's so much politics, right, about, you know, being the owner of a certain kind of database that was chosen 20 years ago. And, you know, people have built mini empires around, uh, you know, very old and archaic and, you know, legacy vendors and legacy technology. And so to displace that can actually be very difficult as well. So I would say that there is definitely the right momentum. Obviously, COVID has only made it better for technology companies to, to look at the financial industry and how we can support change. I think what's interesting is that when it's come down to that change, 
it has a lot more to do whether you have a good leader in place that will really push forward with it or whether really someone is feeling very protective over something that they've been doing for the past 20, even 10 years. Gotcha. And it really comes down to people, basically. It's a, it's a really good point. It's the same in most industries, isn't it? It's just different building blocks or different blocks that you move around, whether it's hierarchical leadership, decision-making, risk, and all that. But one thing I wanted to ask you was being in the finance sector with Merrill Lynch and Barclays Capital, in 2014, you started Suede, and you, you've alluded to why you started it, but what was the pivotal point that you went, you know what, I'm going to get out of here and start a business that's going to revolutionize some of these processes or policies or being able to help these organizations with these processes and policies moving forward? What was the pivotal point for you to say, I'm going to do this? Yeah, I mean... It's funny because sometimes people think that to start a business, it, it's like something really sudden or that, you know, you need to be straight out of university. But yeah. if you look, you know, on average, uh, you know, successful entrepreneurs uh, usually are over 30, right? Yep. And the average is usually over 31. And uh, and that's something that I think, you know, is not spoken about enough because I think most people are afraid to start a business because they think, well, I'm not straight out of uni or I'm not young anymore. Or, you know, it's not the right time. And they kind of overthink it. Yeah. You got a mortgage or you got a family and you got to pay the bills. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I have to say that for me, the transition was very natural. Uh, even I thought it would be really brutal. You know, I thought it would be kind of like, you know, push my chair on the desk and leave <laughs> and make a big scene. That's what my very, you know, I'm like half Korean, half Greek. So I had a very melodramatic idea of like how I would leave the industry. You thought that was going to happen or you were hoping that was going to happen? Donna? I thought, I thought that that's, you know, because I have, you know, obviously like I'm a passionate person, right? So I thought one day when I would be really angry at something that I would just do like a dramatic exit. Love it. And then, <laughs> which is not at all what happened. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because obviously, I guess as a banker, as an engineer, as in by training, I'm actually very cautious in the way I think about sure. things. So I think what happened for me is that, you know, I loved banking. Obviously, the industry changed dramatically after the crisis. And so the impact, you know, that I, I was mentioning to you was so important for me to see in terms of results when I came out of university, uh, started decreasing, right? So you couldn't really make the same kind of decisions um the decision process you know rightly so i guess in, in, in from the most part post the financial crisis was obviously very focused on the regulatory piece the banks were very careful because obviously they had just come out of a crisis and so that meant that it was really hard to get things done right and to move into um like certain opportunities to to take, you know, a leading uh, approach to certain things. And so I think that that's in many ways what drove me to think, well, I need to go somewhere again where I can kind of do work and see the results much faster. And, um, and so over the years that I was in the industry, I changed jobs a few times, like I was mentioning. That was unheard of, right? Because everyone was so focused on not losing their job at the sure. time because we were all post-crisis. Of course. Uh, people were like, why are you not just sitting put? You're so lucky that, you know, you still have your job and you're being paid well. And it's, uh, you know, all of us are getting fired and you just want to like keep learning other things. And I'm like, well... I think that that's how you learn, right? And, Absolutely. And I think by changing jobs, I realized after a certain point that if I was still not happy, that maybe it was not, you know, desk that I was on, right? But more that I had to do something different. And I'm so glad I made the jump, right? Because I think, you know, I started researching the idea. I remember going to a conference where they mentioned 
a few entrepreneurs speaking on stage and I went to ask them and I was like, so what do you recommend me to do? So I should have this idea. Should I just quit? And really interestingly, all of them were like, no, you know, like one of them used to work at Amazon and he was telling me that he like worked on his idea on the side for a year. And, you know, that all of them had done is that fundamentally they had kind of bought time on their job worked really hard obviously because you still have to do your job of and course. try to figure out what you, you do next and then when they felt that they had something then they did the shift and so that was really the best advice i got right and so i started working on on what i wanted to do next and so by the time i left the industry i remember doing like a list of pros and cons and the only con in my list of leaving at that point in time was just the fact that i was leaving the trading floor, which is something, you know, it's really an environment that I, that I adored mm-hmm. and everything else was just pros. And so I think that that gave me like a really good, it was just a wonderful way to leave in some ways, to not leave suddenly or drastically and more really with the thought of what I wanted to do next with my career, having given that thought, having worked on the idea for a bit as well. It's interesting because that, you know, that meant that when we left the the industry, I mean, my, my co-founders, the CTO are in the business as well. And uh, we both left around the same time in banking to basically start the business. And, you know, we had a very clear idea by then of what we wanted to do and what we wanted to build. So it meant that we didn't really pivot a lot. I mean, obviously, we've pivoted a lot in terms of like decisions of things here and there. But fundamentally, the company as is now, the product, the platform we've built is basically very close to what we did in our first MVP. And uh, and it is a complex product, right? But it's sure. all of that analysis, all of that research, all of that thinking beforehand uh, that allowed us to leave very confidently. And leaving confidently, leaving, you know, with a really well thought out plan about how, you know, to pay yourself for like at least a year because that's, you know, founder life is not very well paid. That kind of stuff meant yep. that when, when I was out there, I actually felt really good about it right so i didn't have any kind of desperation about paying my bills and that kind of stuff yeah and so anyone that's looking at starting a business out there that would be my advice right is that it's it's really important when you start a business to actually do as much planning as you can but also you're going to have to bring in revenue and it's really hard to bring in revenue or even fundraise if you feel that if you don't get that money in, you're not going to be able to pay your bills. You're putting extra pressure on yourself. That's right. Yeah. That's really yeah. that's really right. And so feeling abundant when you're starting yeah. is really important to get a good start. NetCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next-generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. data had a sound, it could be this. 
the sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MedCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe. That's awesome. You know, you you make a really good point. Prior to COVID, I attended SASTOC and SASTA, which are two big technology events, as you know, in Europe and, and the States. Yeah. And one of the things that's really resonated over the past few years is people having side hustles, you know, having either part-time jobs or advisory board jobs or trying to set up businesses on the side. But it sounds like, you know, seven years ago, you were one of the early adopters of that. Yeah. So let's just call you a, a pioneer of the of the side hustle. <laughs> For the sake of this podcast, shall we? I love it. Yes, pioneer of the said hustle. And now I'm a full hustle. Now you're a full hustle and a founder and a, and a successful one at that. So what a great story. We, we could really market that well, I think. You mentioned COVID and I really struggle to find out what is everyone going to speak about when COVID starts to go away? You know, it sounds like every conversation we have nowadays, well, COVID, post-COVID, pre-COVID. I, I, I want to touch on this a little bit because you did touch on it during that overview, which you gave us. And you, you mentioned about COVID and the past 18 months has certainly changed the world. There's no doubt about that. You know, we haven't been able to travel. We haven't been, you know, in some cases, we haven't been able to leave the house. You know, some of us have had COVID, some of us haven't. And when you have COVID, you can't even leave your room, let alone your house. So one question I want to ask, and I do ask this with a lot of people is, how has it affected your business and your industry in the past 18 months? What's been a positive in some ways and what's been a negative that's come out of it from 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 your side or your viewpoint? So I think, you know, thankfully for our business, COVID has been quite positive and we've been very lucky. Uh, well, I guess not lucky, but, you know, we work in regulations, so obviously any kind of uncertainty is good for us in some ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the regulators have asked certain things of the industry as well, which obviously give us opportunities to to upsell. They wanted to stress scenarios. They wanted to do all sorts of things that were quite good for us in terms of selling more even to our customers. And then we were just very well set up to be fully remote because we are a tech com first company, right? That's what I was saying. And so it's uh, it's just in our DNA, right, to be able to to do this. I think that the reality, I mean, there is something to say about the office, right? I think that the world is going to change and we'll probably use it less, but there are things that become harder, right? I think in particular for, you know, younger staff, people who want to be trained, it's almost unfair on them. Right. Because it's, uh, you know, part of being in an office, it's a bit different when you're older and when you have your family and you have your life. But when you're young and this is kind of the beginning of your career, you want to be out. Right. You want to meet people and your job is actually a way to do it. Absolutely. And agree. so, you know, not giving them a platform to be trained and to learn and to meet people is also not really the way forward, right? So I think we're, I'm hoping we'll be able to get the best of all worlds. You know, we are taking an approach of being, you know, a remote, you know, remote working company, but we still try to provide some kind of like on-site approach or in London where our headquarters are, you know, we have an office, we are doing that in Singapore, New York, I think where we have some main offices. Now we've become quite big in Madrid as well, uh, France. So all of that gives us an opportunity to actually have some kind of on-site presence, which is also great. 
But, you know, we've also hired people in places where we don't have an office. And that also is a great flexibility in terms of attracting talent. Absolutely. We're going to have to figure this out. And I think more than just businesses figuring this out, really landlords, the WeWorks of this world are going to have to figure this out. Because if they want people to come back to the office, they're going to have to find, you know, approaches that are much more flexible, you know, in terms of like rent shares and and that kind of stuff. No one's going to want to pay for an office that is only being used two days a week. Yep. Absolutely agree. So I think that that kind of stuff still has to change and they have not adapted at all, you know, and and that's something that is, is a bit of a pity. And so people are almost taking the decision that at the expense of getting a good deal, they'll just continue working and work. Yep. Right. So until that's not adjusted, then it's it's not okay. Yeah. Right. It's going to be complicated. But uh, let's see what happens in the next couple of years. How the workforce readjusts, how how the world readjusts to what we've just gone through, uh, and that we take the part of flexibility, right, more than anything else when it comes to COVID. And and I have found COVID. It's been a global disaster, but there's been global coordination as well. I agree. And I think that that is very inspiring, right? So when you think, oh, we can't resolve this or climate change or all of these other problematics that we're facing as people, that's just nonsense. It's been proven with COVID that if, you know, politicians and countries coordinate themselves, they can actually get a lot of stuff done, like close us all into our houses for months at a time. (laughs) Yeah, you can actually drive somewhere in 10 minutes as opposed to taking three and a half hours in London or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Just on that point, Diana, really good point, by the way. I really loved your your overview. But it touches on the culture side of the business. And I know that's something that you're really passionate about within Sway. You know, you you have this saying, lead to laugh. And you, you, you really talk about not being too serious. You love to laugh within the company. You love to hire good people and not micromanage. And I really want you to talk to me about um, the culture of Sway, because I really love the the idea around it, you know, I've not been in the business, so I don't know, but you know, this is things that I've, I've researched. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the culture. I'd love you to give me an overview of the lead to laugh philosophy because I, I love it. I really do. And then I want to touch on a couple of other points that you've made in other interviews, but on that lead to laugh thing, tell us about the culture of the business and how you're going to continue that culture from a remote point of view, perhaps. So, you know, that's something, it's a, it's a great question because obviously we've been giving a lot of thought about that over the past few months because it's just not the same. It's so much easier to have a culture when people get to see each other in an of office. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to people that we hire to all be people that can learn, lead and laugh. That was kind of the, the philosophy behind our culture. So basically, really you know, it is really a cross-pollination in our business between people you know, who come from the financial industry and the, and really developers, right? And so these are not necessarily people who interact with each other in normal circumstances. So the philosophy behind this is that we wanted people to really have, I guess, the, the right kind of attitude, right? And the right kind of humility to learn from each other, right? So you don't want divas or developers. That's kind of, sometimes you have these divas. Of course. That we call, but you have them as well in banking too. Of course fair. you do, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, to really just work with nice people, right? Who had the right approach to to learn from each other and and who really were humble enough to understand where their understanding stopped, right? And what they need to learn from someone else. And then, you know, we're not micromanagers at heart. I mean, I hated if I had like a manager that was a micromanager in in, in my career. And so it's very much about the belief that, you know, we're hiring people that we believe 
are leaders, right? There, there's no point to to hire people that and not support people as well. That you know, you think they're good, and then you're kind of micromanaging everything that they do. So that you want people who have this kind of right balanced approach in terms of like knowing what they don't know, but then also knowing what they know and being able to make decisions and to take you know ownership and to feel comfortable to lead, right? Because it is as above all as a startup as a scale up now you're growing and there are the frictions of growth right and so you need to have people who are going to be able to step up and take responsibility and 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 really you know take charge of course and so that's where the second the second piece comes from and then laugh because i mean you can never take yourself too seriously right and i think there is a reality of i mean i really really it's not my approach to kind of behave like you're too cool for school or that kind of behavior is just something that I just don't get. You and me both. You and me both. (laughs) You know, like it's just life is so precious and we're so lucky to be on this journey that you can't be blasé about anything. I agree. Right. And you should just really embrace things and enjoy them and make the most of your time on earth. And so that approach of just laughing and enjoying things and being an Epicurean at heart, right, I think is something that was really important for us as well. You know, it's interesting because we always joke that a lot of the people that we hire and a lot of our management team, I mean, they are a lot of people who just love traveling. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, people who just really like, you know, when you travel, you naturally are learning, leading and laughing, right? Because that's of kind of you know, learn about new cultures and you have to organize your trip and take charge and figure out where you want to go. And you have to just, you know, like want to enjoy life, right? Because if not, why would you even leave your house if it's not to learn something new or eat something new or Absolutely. meet new people and have a good time? So, so yeah, so I think that that's, we do rate highly people who like traveling (laughs) that's fantastic you know it's it's the only thing i've really missed i didn't think i would you know in in our industry and and certainly industry or companies that are based in europe most of our growth happens in north america so the last decade i've been doing a lot of traveling to the far east yeah and and also to north america and i do enjoy the travel i'm i'm a history buff so anywhere i can go whether it's spain france belgium wherever i want to learn more about the history so traveling is a big aspect of my life yeah Yeah. the reason why i moved from australia to europe back in in 98 to play cricket was because i have a passion for the first world war and the history of the first world war so and i remember talking about that with my grandfather when i was eight years old nine years old so i agree with you i think travel is all about it it's it's what i teach my kids or, or try and show my children as well i couldn't agree more and i think that's a, it's a really important element for, for for the flexibility within a business too is to have people that yeah. can understand different cultures can be diverse don't take themselves too seriously and want to experience life not just in their own countries but internationally i think it's it's a major element one of the things that that I, i'm passionate about and i know that you've you've spoken about previously in an interview that you've done was was about coming back to work as a mum, and i know you've got a three-year-old and a, a nine-month-old yeah and running a successful company as well hats off to you by the way i'm so impressed so impressed Thank you. one of the things that i've been passionate about over the past probably 14 years since my son was born was my wife used to run a very successful company here in the uk we moved to australia she had a child and to get someone who was an operations director of a multi-million pound company back into the workforce was almost impossible because she was a mum or she didn't want to work full time. And it really used to grate on me. And it's, it still does. You know, I talk about this in technology events. I think the biggest waste of resource, intelligent, brilliant, you know, successful resource are parents trying to return to work. 
and the stigma around, oh, they've got a child, so therefore they're going to bunk off here or they're going to do this. Personally, I've employed mums and I've employed dads coming back to the workforce because I think they're the most brilliant resource and best workers I've ever hired. And, and it's something I'm really passionate about. And I know you are as well. How does Suede Labs go about um, looking for talent? And are you also one of these people that wants to embrace people coming back in the workforce, whether it be because they wanted to have a holiday or they wanted to have time off to reevaluate themselves or they wanted to be parents? Is that something you guys embrace as well? Yeah, completely. And, you know, I think, I mean, what you, the, the points you just made, you know, they're, they're so real and they're so hidden you know, in some ways. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's just crazy. You know, when I think of my career and how unaware I was of the realities around parenthood and how difficult it was to balance a career and a family, I find that we are doing a huge disservice to people and professionals to not, one, resolve the problem, but then two, speak about it openly. Because the problem is that people then just get hit by a ton of breaks when they have children. And, it, you know, that also doesn't allow them to plan, right? And so planning actually is a big part of making that a success and the balancing act, right, between the, the realities of being a parent and, and not. And so there is one thing that, you know, for us, yes, I think that, you know, we've taken this approach where, you know, for example, paternity leave company is paid for one month. And then we kind of adjust to try to help for the other, you know, five months so that it almost becomes like a six month situation for the father. And, you know, it's really hard to make that happen, right? There's no support from the government. But the reason that I was really keen to make that happen is because, you know, obviously I've always been involved in like topics around you know, women and equality at work. And when I was in banking, I was part of all of these women networks and, you know, one of the leaders in those topics and, and helping to organize events, all sorts of things. Then I left banking. I was like, well, now I'm the boss. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I can hire as many women as I want, etc." I'm saying this because it's more the problematic is more around parenthood. It's not just women, but obviously women, unfortunately, end up taking the toll of it most of the time. Of course, yeah. And the thing is that I realized when I was interviewing people that I was biased about, you know, a woman being at a certain age, maybe about to go to have a baby and that kind of stuff. And I was like, this is not happening. This is not possible, right? Because I'm a woman. How can I be, you know, having this, you know, it's kind of like, it's really unconscious bias, right? And so it really hit me. And this is before having kids, right? Before I was like, the only reason that this is happening is because of the reality around, you know, maternity leave. And I was like, the only way for, for us to be fair, even in an interview process, right, is to just make it an equal burden if you want on the company to be able to support your employees around that and that just seems so just mathematically obvious and logical when Mm. you start when you're a business owner you realize how quickly that bias comes in because you know obviously you care about every penny you're spending and so you suddenly someone that you're hiring for a job is off for six months on your company right obviously having a kid or they're not on a holiday right but they're off and so you have a role to fill and it's not like you have a ton of money at the beginning so it's a huge problematic that you know basically the government offloads on you know small companies and then large companies don't really address it either Mm. and there is a reality where this has to be taken care as a government level right there's no it's just not okay for it to just be left to people to figure out how to do this or for the employer to do it. It should just be part of the law. I agree. Right. And so what we need is really a lot more support from government to support families, to support parents, 
you know, with childcare that is affordable or free. I find yep. it scandalous, right, that we are in a, in a society that is, you know, modern and advanced and that we are talking about equality without this topic being so, so predominant in everything around that. It's impossible, even if a woman doesn't want to have kids, right? The bias is around that because Absolutely. she might want to have a kid and it just happens automatically, right? Whether you're talking to investors, whether you're talking to, I mean, clients don't care, but you know, it's, it's just like, it's obvious when you are someone that has had a child above all, you know how much work they take, yep. right? And so obviously you'll be biased to think, well, how are they actually going to balance that out? You know, childcare closes at 3.30, uh, for most places, they're close super early. Absolutely. In, what do we expect of women or of parents, right? So either we just really, uh, you know, adjust our infrastructure, we get affordable childcare, we should have childcare everywhere. There should I be agree. everywhere, basically. Yep. Yep. And we don't make this situation completely a burden on the parents and on the couples and on the companies, because it's not their job to make, I mean, ideally, you want them to do the right thing, but it just has to be law. Absolutely. Right, and then it's a no-brainer, and everyone will just adjust to it, and it's just fine, right? But it's it's scandalous, you know. In my career, I never ever felt biased as a woman, yeah. Right, I, but as a mother, I really got hit with the realities of the the bias, right, that it generates, and you understand it, yeah. Right, it's like you know, everyone assumes that you have nothing else to do but to to be with your kid. Right. And it's and I think that that kind of stuff, you know, and you love your children, but you're almost forced to not have them with you. That's if right. You want to yeah. And that, I think, is almost criminal. You know, so for me, I was really privileged. And I know that because I could actually take my children with me. I can still take my children with me wherever I want because yeah. it's my business. Absolutely. But it's a privilege. Right. I can afford childcare, but it's a whole system. Right. It's like I have childcare. I have nannies. I have my team is almost like an extended village that takes care of my children. <laughs> if there is an emergency. Yep. yep. Not everyone is in this situation at all. So no. why are we spending so much money in educating women if then basically they end up in this loophole of society the moment they start having kids? I think it's a great point. No, I, think, I you know, I, I commend what you're doing within Suede for allowing people to bring their children in. I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely great. I know we're we're at the end of our time, so yeah, sorry, I have to run, but it's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's it's good. I've got quick questions. I just need you to answer very very quickly. And the first one is: you speak six languages. Is there one that you really wish that you had have learnt and you haven't? I wish I had learned Greek. You know, I'm half Greek. Right. I feel bad that I can't communicate with part of my family in Greek, basically. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Do you have a mentor or someone that's helped you during your career that you always go back and, and, and filter things through? So many people. I can't even name one person. That's all right. You know, that's great. That, <laughs> you know, mentoring is something that we should all do and that we should all receive and by Absolutely. so many people. And I think I always almost approach every single person that I talk to, whether it's a friend or a stranger as a potential mentor in my approach to them, because you can always learn from someone. Absolutely and, uh, agree. And yeah, it's, uh, I value that. I think that's been such an important thing throughout my career. I've had amazing mentors that are women and men. I have yep. a lot of men mentors that have been also amazing. It's just something that, you know, it should just be the way you approach your career. You should just always think that you're surrounded by everyone's a potential mentor. So be always open to learn from anyone. I agree completely. I think that's a great philosophy. Last question, and then you've got to run. What yeah. do you wish you had known when you started your career that you do now? I wish I had known 
that everything is always okay. I love it. I I think that's great. That is fantastic. Everything is going to be okay. Yeah. I think think that's fantastic. And with the right people around you, that's going to happen. Diana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope that we get to see each other face-to-face sometime and enjoy either a coffee or a glass of wine. And uh, I can thank you for uh, being a guest on the Vanguard podcast. No, it's my pleasure. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Scott. Really a delight. Thank you, Diana. Take care. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. You too. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vanguard podcast. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes that go live every other Wednesday. You can also listen to previous episodes where I've spoken to leaders and innovators from business owners and founders to even ex-Olympians. Thanks so much to Diana for being my guest this week. She's such a motivated and inspirational person whose passion for her work and her company is infectious. Her drive to create future leaders, lobby governments for supported parental leave and helping the banking and regulated sector streamline processes after her experiences in that industry is just a wonderful story of vision and determination. I got a lot out of our discussion on how Diana hires people on their ability to be future and current leaders and where she also looks for the quality of being comfortable to lead. And that's something I'm going to implement in my hiring process going forward as well. Thanks everyone for tuning in and remember, take care, stay safe and keep on innovating.